Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In this latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event in our 2019 autumn literature season for your listening pleasure. Good evening, and welcome to Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall. I'm Debo Amon, Literature Programmer here at Southbank Centre, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Richard Dawkins' An Argument for Atheism. We're really excited to be presenting this event with Penguin Live as part of our literature season. As one of the world's best-selling science communicators, Richard Dawkins has spent a lifetime helping us rethink the big questions, challenging us, challenging us all to understand how our world came into being. Now, in his latest book, Dawkins dissects everything from Abraham's abuse of Isaac to to the construction of a snowflake and challenges some of our most basic assumptions from is the Bible a good book to do we need God in order to be good? As always, all this is done with Dawkins' irreverence, wit and fierce humour. Chairing tonight's event is broadcaster David Freeman, currently the bluesman on Jazz FM. Freeman's heritage is in books and ideas. For nine years, Freeman interviewed four authors a day, five days a week on BBC Radio Oxford. Following that, he presented Science in Action on BBC World Service and the book show for Sky TV. Freeman set up meettheauthor.com, linking authors by screen to bookshops. Freeman is a voracious reader and has enjoyed chairing numerous events at literary festivals. Now. Please join me in welcoming Richard Dawkins and David Freeman. Good evening. Thank you for coming out in such numbers. You've all been given a book. Please don't read it now. Um, I'm going to start. I've I've read it and, and made all these notes. Richard wrote it, so he knows. It's called Outgrowing God, and it starts at the beginning. Goodbye, God. So many gods. Then the first three, four words on page one. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? (laughs) Which God? Well, choose one. (laughs) Thor. Yeah, do do you you believe in any of them? No, Uh, I don't believe in anything supernatural. How is it that an evolutionary biologist decides to focus on this. I mean, my overriding thought when I was reading your book, and I've been going back through the Dawkins canon, reading some other books, is can it, can the urge to find a god be explained Darwinically? Well, yes, and that's a completely different question from whether it's true, of course. There are people who confuse the question and think that because it can be explained, because there's some biological advantage in believing in a god, that therefore it somehow must be true. Of course, the reverse is the the case. There's no reason to suppose it's true, but it is an interesting question nevertheless to explain why we have this propensity to believe in the supernatural. And virtually all peoples in the plural have had that urge. Well, you make this point that most people in most land masses around the globe believe in a god, um, and you get the least take up in Europe. Why is that? Today, that's true, yes. Of course, if you look at the history of Europe, um, 
many of the wars of Europe have been fought over religion, sometimes over really quite minor differences in religion. So it has been a very, very important part of European history. As to why Europe is leading the way, actually, in the emancipation from religion, uh, especially over America, which is surprising, um, I don't really have an explanation for that. Um, I suppose if you turn the question around and say, why is there so much religiosity in America, that could be, pop it's been suggested, that's because they don't have an established church. We have an established church, and the Scandinavians do and so on, which makes religion boring, because it's, it's what you do when you get married or baptized or, or die, die. Mm. Um, or, or crowned. Um, and I don't see how that explains In God We Trust. Well, In God We Trust is a fairly recent addition to the American currency. I think it dates back to the 1950s. So uh, whose idea was that then? Well, it was, it was the, uh, I don't know whose individual idea it was, but it was inspired by the McCarthy era, where um, communism was the great enemy, and atheist communism was one, almost became one word. And so in the Eisenhower years, they, they put in God we trust onto the dollar bills as a kind of anti-communist gesture. I want to take you back to that supposition which one hears quite often, that religions start wars. How about changing that a little bit? I mean, if you see, was it yesterday there was marching in Glasgow, um, one march from uh, the Unionists and one march from uh, the other side, one march Protestant, one march Catholic. So could it be not that it's a religious motivation, but that it's a tribal motivation? I think that's a very good point, and, and, and tri tribalism is one of the great menaces of humanity. If you go back to the First World War, it was tribalism, uh, it was nationalism, patriotism, um, and Second World War too, I suppose, in another way. Um, so yes, tribalism, but religion does provide one of the main tribal labels. In Northern Ireland, for example, we're taught that it's not about religion, it's about um, economic deprivation and that kind of thing, and no doubt it is. But the reason you can identify yourself as belonging to one tribe or another uh, is religion. There's no other means. It's been the case for centuries that um, people of the, of the one tribe marry the, the same tribe and send their children to schools of the same tribe. So no wonder they're polarized in this way. I was going to bring that up later, but as you've just plopped that uh, on the table, schools, religious schools, do you have a one-sentence summation of what you feel about those? Well, I think that it's important to teach religion because religion is so important in history and the Bible is so important in literature. So I'm, I'm all for teaching scripture and teaching religious history. What I'm against is having denominational schools where children are taught one religion and taught you belong to this religion. You are labeled as a follower of this religion. That I think is wicked. So when a couple bring forth and they say, this is a Christian child, or this is a Methodist child, or this child is a Mormon, What's the view on that? Well, I, I mean, you, you can immediately get the point if I say this is a logical positivist child, this is an existentialist child, <laughs> this is a Keynesian child, this is a Thatcherite ch child. You would never do that. And yet religion is the one place where we give a free pass to this labeling of children. I mean, of course, we know that parents influence their, their children, 
And so, for example, uh, if, uh, if, if, if parents are keen botanists, it's not unlikely the child might be as well. You don't say this is a botanist child, botanical child, when it's the age of four, um, simply because its parents are. But that's exactly what you do with what religion. What sort of school did you go to? Anglican. So, okay. And so, from that, can I sort of extrapolate that there was a time when Richard Dawkins, on his, on, as you'll read in your book, on his first report, it says Dawkins has three speeds, slow, slower, and stop. Um, True. But, <laughs> but did you emerge from that conditioning? Well, I hope I got a bit faster, a bit, a bit, a bit quicker. Um, I, I suppose I emerged in two stages, one at the age of about nine, um, when I got the point that there are so many different religions, they can't all be right. And then I kind of clung on to a sort of deism, belief that there had to be some sort of creative intelligence behind the complexity and the beauty of the living world. So it was when I finally tumbled to the power of Darwinian evolution that I finally gave it up. Now how old were you? 15 or so. 15. What's the effect that you want to have with these books, Outgrowing God? I mean, my first thought was, is this as a species we should try and outgrow God, or as individuals? Well, I think I would think both. I, I mean, I, I hope you noticed in reading the book that there are an awful lot of questions, an awful lot of what do you think? Yes. Um, do you agree? What, what do you think? So I'm, I'm trying not to indoctrinate. I'm very conscious of the, of the dangers of indoctrination and conscious of the fact that I, I'm such a vigorous opponent of indoctrination on the one side that I mustn't do it on the other. Uh, I was talking about you at a party last night. Um, who, were, who were? Who with? Um, in the village where I live, with the vicar, and I was saying... <laughs> and, and I said to him, you know, what would you say to Richard? And he's a very nice guy, he's just... Uh, but he's a very nice guy. He said, why does Richard Dawkins care so much? And, I mean, I understand that. I've been going back to the watchmaker's tale. The blind watchmaker. 1986? Yes. I mean, you were angry then. You're still angry. No, I wasn't angry. I, I, I love truth. I mean, I, I suspect that what your vicar doesn't understand is that truth is important. If he's anything like... <laughs> well, I, I tried to get him to come along tonight, but he said it was Sunday and he was busy. Well, I can understand. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the, the way they think... I, I hope I'm not insulting anybody, but... It, it doesn't matter what's true. What matters is what's symbolic and what's, sign what's symbolically significant. It's a metaphor for something. I've sometimes satirized this by saying, if one day it turns out that the double helix model of DNA is incorrect, then the theological response to that would be, oh, well, of course we don't literally believe in DNA anymore. We don't, not, truth doesn't matter. What matters is that the, the coiling around of the... Of the two halves of the double helix is symbolic of human love and the, <laughs> the, the, the uniting of the Purines and the Pyrimidines is, is, is symbolic. Uh, well, it's a little bit like, um, you know, the, the Song of Songs, which is the only sexy book in, in, the, in the Bible. Um, and it's all very obviously about sexual love between a woman and a man. But if you look at the... Uh, Christian commentary on the top of each page. It says, 
the love of Christ for his church, and things like that. It's, it's manifestly about sex, and yet they try to drag a symbolic significance out of it, and that's what they do all the time. If you actually challenge them on a fact, they say, oh, well, we don't believe the facts anymore, but it's symbolic. Yes. Um... <laughs> now, I'm going to say something. Mm, I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this. But the fact, I mean, what do you think happens when you die? Well, you're either cremated or you're buried. Or... <laughs> okay. Have you made a choice yet? No. I, I, actually, or you can leave your body to science. That's another thing you can do. Okay. But does your demise, which will be sooner than it was when I first asked you that question. True enough. Yes. Yeah. Um, does it worry you? Does it distort or change your view? The process of dying worries me because being a member of the species Homo sapiens, I'm not at liberty to go to the vet and be put down. Um, so, and and I, I suspect that the process of dying is not a lot of fun for a lot no, of No, I mean, again, I didn't say I was going to do this, but it was, um, it was in the press that you'd had um, a medical problem. Yes. Um, now, not wishing to pry at all, but has that experience changed your view of just the thing about being alive? Well, I appreciate very much being alive. I enjoy life very much, and I, I want to go on living as long as I'm able-bodied and able-minded enough to make the most of it. Um, but if you think about what's actually frightening about death, I suspect it's actually eternity. I think there is something frightening about eternity, and it's so frightening that I think the best thing would be to spend it under a general anaesthetic, <laughs> which is what's going to happen. You think? I'm sure, yeah. When you write books like this, and you come and talk to gatherings like this, um, what's the effect you would like to have? Because I would like some believers to go, goodness me, Richard, thank you for showing. That, that's, cheered, that's cleared everything up for me, but I suspect that's not what happens. Well, amazingly enough, I've had a lot of letters from people who say exactly what happens. Um, I'm not saying it'll happen in this audience, but, but um, I do get a lot of letters saying sometimes that, and sometimes uh, you have put into words what I, was, what I already thought, but had never properly articulated. And I, I like both those responses. Do you need a religion, a God, to be good? Absolutely not. Um, if you think about the reason why you might need a God to be good, um, one possible reason would be that your holy book, the Bible or the Quran, whatever it is, tells you how to be good. And I sincerely hope nobody believes that because that would be an appalling way to lead your life, to actually take a moral lesson from either the Bible or the Quran. Um, the other reason why you might be thought to need a God to be good is that you are frightened of God. You're, you're frightened that, as it were, there's a great policeman in the sky who watches your every move, even reads your every thought, and knows when you're even contemplating doing something bad. So. That might be thought to be a good reason not to be bad, a good reason to be good. 
And conceivably, that's true. Conceivably, there are people who are deterred from doing bad things by the thought that there's a great spy camera in the sky watching your every move and your every thought. But what an ignoble reason to be good. If I thought that was the reason you were good, I'd kind of edge away from you, I think. Quite well. Yeah. Yes. I mean, are we changing a little bit in, in this country? Um, if whoever goes up against Donald Trump next year, I don't think they dare come out as being an atheist. I don't think you, you have to yes. be perceived to belong to a faith group of some sort. Is that true here? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think um, when Tony Blair was, was goaded by Jeremy Paxman with, you know, do, do you pray with George Bush? Far from saying yes, he, he was rather sort of, you know, Shrank from the, from we the, don't do God. We don't do God. God. Well, Alistair Campbell said that. But, mm. um, I, I, think it is, I think it is different here. It, it, it still seems to be true in America that they've got to pay lip service to being religious believers. That cannot be true if you think about it statistically. There are, what, 530-something members of the U.S. Congress. Um, some of them, no doubt, are pretty well educated. It's... It's... <laughs> it's um, inconceivable that, that every single one of them holds supernatural beliefs. It cannot possibly be true. And that means that a, a, a substantial number of them are actually living a lie. I just wonder um, if, the, if the urges, the, uh, the campaigns to change things actually work. There was a time when you used to wear a little badge that said Brights, because there was, right, yeah. there was um, a movement in uh, America, I think, to, uh, to label atheists as brights. But did anything come of that? No, it, 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 it flopped, rather. It was, it was not a great success. Um, I think it was thought to be arrogant, um, to which Dan Dennett replied, well, it's only arrogant if you think that the opposite of the, the brights is the dims. <laughs> um, but you don't have to call them that. He said, well, since the opposite of the, of, of the brights is the supernatural believers, you could call them the supers. Nobody would mind being called a super. <laughs> Yes. Now, if there was going to be a creator, the creator would have been responsible for the very first organism, wouldn't it? That would have been the clever thing. Y yes, I mean, that would be right, I suppose. But, but real creationists think that he's responsible for every species as well. That's far-fetched, isn't it? Of course it is. But, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> I mean, at the, at the end of this, which this book takes evolution backwards, and you go back to the beginning of life, and you say that it's possible that we all uh, have evolved from minute bacteria who just loved heat in, in, in those uh, vents from the ocean. Yes, I mean, that's one theory. Nobody, nobody knows how life began. And one fairly fashionable theory is that it started in um, the then equivalent of these vents under, under the sea with volcanic heat. Does that hold up? Does that... I don't know. I'm, I, I think it's, it's one very nice theory, and there, there are several. The, the origin of life is one of the mis mysteries we don't yet understand. We understand the kind of thing that must have happened. And the volcanic vents theory is one of the plausible theories. And while we're just talking about this, just to, just to sort of put a, a line in the sound, <clears throat> how long ago is this? How long has life been going on? 
probably about 4 billion years. And the, the earliest fossils are about 3.8 billion years, so it probably started... Um, well, the Earth itself is about 4.5 billion years old, so it's sometime between that and 3.8 billion years. So any deity would have been darn busy for quite some time. <laughs> yes, well, yes. You just have to wonder what he's been doing all in the rest of the universe as well. Yes, now, this, this current volume finishes with the wild and wacky multiverse. Not only is this universe huge and we're just a small part, but there could be other universes. I mean, I've, I've tried to read about this, but I, I get headaches. Me too. Yeah. Um, do you give it credibility? Do you think it's... Physicists tell me that there are good reasons to believe that the universe in which we live is only one of a very, very large number of universes. Um, and the, the laws and constants of physics, according to this physics, physical theory, are likely to be different in these different universes. And so um, it could be that only a very small minority of universes are suitable for the evolution of life. And by definition, we have to be in one of that minority. That's the anthropic principle. By definition, we have to be in, in the minority of universes which are capable of giving rise to... I mean, many of them would not be capable of giving rise to stars, for example. You can't have life without stars because you need stars to make chemistry and so on. As someone who loves truth, do you find that these... I mean, they do sound like wild surmises. Yes, they? some of them are wild surmises. That's true. Um, we, we, we know a lot about life on this planet, and we don't know nothing about life anywhere else in the universe, um, so we have nothing but wild surmises to go on. But the sheer number of planets around, and, the, and if the physicists are right, the sheer number of universes around, means that we can speculate with, with reasonable um, plausibility. Would it be fair to say that one of your arguments against religion is that the cosmos, life, us, is so fantastic and exciting and beautiful and wonderful, it's somehow diminished by a religion. I would say exactly that, yes. I would, I would say that I mean, some religious people would say it's so fantastic and beautiful and wonderful, therefore there must be a God. I take the reverse view, which you've just enunciated, um, that... It is, it is wonderful to be able to say, yes, we, we understand the kind of way in which it came about. And the last chapter of Outgrowing God is trying to make the point that Darwin and his successors, in a way, solved the difficult problem, which is explaining the complexity of life. And although we don't yet understand some remaining problems, like the origin of the laws of physics, in a way, I see that as the easy problem. And Darwin, having solved the difficult problem, should give us confidence to think that we're, we're well on the way to understanding the rest of everything. Well, if you keep a dog, you know that a dog likes a leader of the pack. If we were to destroy all our gods, is it built into our nature that we invent another leader of the pack. We invent another thing to, to be zealous about. Well, that's a... Yes, I mean, I think that, that could be so. I mean, are, are you suggesting 
dogs worship us. I mean, no, but they're willing to follow us, aren't they? Yes. No, I mean, they are pack animals. And I just wonder, because we evolved in small groups and every group would have had a leader, if somehow we feel the need, um, I mean, you can see it happening, new religions being invented. Yeah. Yes. That somehow it, it's a need built into us. I think that's quite plausible. I think that's among the various psychological props that tend to lead to religion. I think that's probably one of them. Because there's a picture um, in your book of um, a guy in a hot country uh, holding a picture of the Duke of Edinburgh. Yes. Um, and it's, it's rather charming, isn't it, that he this, thinks... Yes, this, this is the chapter on the origin of myths and, and the cargo cults of the South Seas. Uh, and um, this, one, one, on one island, there's a cult that worships the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, when he, he visited the island, I think, on one of his world tours, which is kind of suggesting that, that you need to worship something. And, and, yeah, um, and they have John Frum. John Frum. Um, that quite a number of islands worship John Frum, um, who it's thought to be an American GI, a, a soldier, was John Frum America. So he became known as John Frum. Um, and um, um, they're, they're waiting for the second coming. Uh, David Attenborough has a rather nice story of how he confronted a, a man called Sam, who was a worshipper of John Frum. And David Attenborough said, well, Sam, you've been waiting 20 years and John Frum hasn't come back. And John Frum said, you've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus Christ. I can wait 20 years for John. <laughs> if we could all, if we could wave a magic wand and everybody stopped believing, would it be better? Yes. How would we know it was better? We, we would base our lives on evidence uh, rather than on superstition. Um, we would not be brought up to believe in implicit faith that what some elders of the tribe or some holy book, some priests tell us is the right thing to do. We would work out ourselves the best way to live, the, the best way to achieve the right way to live. There would never be any um, motivation to kill people because they belong to the wrong faith, or to persecute people because they belong to the wrong faith, or to try to lay down morality out of a holy book, like saying that being gay is somehow in inherently wrong because God says it's wrong. All those sorts of ways, it would be a better world to live in. How, optimist how optimistic are you? In the very long run, I'm optimistic, but it'll take time. Will you see it? No, I doubt it. Would you please thank Richard Dawkins? That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Southbank Centre Books podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.